0: Hello and welcome to the Venture Fuel podcast. I'm your host, Fred Schonenberg. On the show, you'll meet visionary innovators at leading companies from MasterCard to Twitch and the top startup founders from around the world. Venture Fuel helps companies identify new ideas to see beyond the status quo and develop an innovation mindset. And now we're going to share a bit of that special sauce with you. On today's show, I'm speaking with George Erison the founder and co-CEO of Shift, an online marketplace disrupting the car industry. George began his career as a project manager for Google before co-founding the first on-demand mobile transportation booking technology called Taxi Magic. He did this two years before Uber was even created. Today, we're going to talk about the journey of a $100 million founder from immigrant to entrepreneur, what a SPAC is, and how to scale an idea into a multi-million dollar business. Let's get after it. George, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I kind of want to start at the beginning. You emigrated from Eurasia to the US as a teenager. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and the role that it has played in your entrepreneurial journey?
1: Totally, uh, happy to. Thanks for having me again. So look, when I came to the US in 1992, it was a very, very different world than one we know today. Today, people kind of expect, hey, I can send an email, I can send a text message, get an instant reply. If you don't get a reply back within an hour, you're like, what happened? Uh, and, you know, even more advanced, you know, talk to a family on video pretty much anywhere in the world. That's not the world I lived in in 1992 when I got here. Um, the only way to call Georgia was through a satellite phone, and it would cost them roughly 6 to $7 a minute to have a conversation and the worst part of it was that you had to wait for the other person to finish talking before you said anything, because there was like a 10 to 15 second delay in the transmission because it would go to asylum and come back uh, down to earth, right? So it was a totally crazy kind of world to be in to be a 14-year-old kid uh, coming to the U.S. and not really having much family here and you know being on your own, really. I was very fortunate because uh, there was an American couple that we had... Gotten to know really well uh, in the years previously uh, when they lived in Georgia and lived with us, who basically took over raising me, and they were a big reason why I was able to actually come to the US uh, and and stay here for a long time afterwards uh, through high school and college. So it was an incredible gift for me to be able to do that. Uh, I got an amazing education um, throughout my kind of academic career, and it prepared me really well for the future. I never thought I would be doing technology, entrepreneurship, that was kind of the last thing I could think about. In my early years, I had a massive passion for politics and still do. And so I always thought that my career would be somehow related to politics. I did think I was going to start a business, but I thought it would be like a political business, you know, like a consulting firm or uh, something focused on helping people win elections, that kind of thing, rather than a business that like what I do now. Um, So never really thought about things in that way. But a lot of what I learned in college is really, really applicable to what I do today. Right? I, a lot of my day job is taking a ton of information, trying to understand what's most distinctive and important about it, and then making decisions based on that information, which is pretty much what you do throughout reading great books and trying to understand what they say and what the teachings of great authors are. And so I think a lot of my kind of political learning is actually super applicable to uh, what I do today, but I never thought that it would be in a sense of what I'm doing now. And then secondly, you know, I think I saw from the earliest time period when I was in the U.S. the incredible opportunity that this country presents um, its citizens uh, and people who, who live here. Really kind of there there are no limits to what you can do. Uh, and, you know, I think in some ways being able to come to the U.S. and go to school here was for me that great kind of proof that you could do that because it was such an insane notion that like, someone from the former Soviet Union could come to the U.S. to go to high school uh, at that time. And so that really engendered in me the idea that I could do anything. And so, you know, throughout my career, I often had notions of I'm going to do X or Y, which most people thought were completely insane notions and wouldn't happen. And then they would. And, you know, I had this belief that I could make them happen in large part because of what coming to America did to me and, and the fact that Doing that alone was such an impossible e- kind of event in, in my life that then anything else after that is, is much less of a big deal than that in itself. So uh, I guess that's how I'd answer the question. And, uh, you know, I, I'm very, very lucky and it wouldn't have been possible, a lot of, a lot of help um, and really grateful for all the help that people gave me throughout my life to be in the U.S.
0: It's really interesting, all, all parts of your story, but, uh, you know, seeing that you went to, to Middlebury. I went to Trinity College, which, you know, they play Middlebury in sports and, you know, the same, the NESCAC, I believe they call it. And it's funny, a lot of people in this tech startup innovation world question the liberal arts education. And I think you just did a really great job of summing up why it's valuable. It's sort of being able to digest all this information that is from all different areas of life and, and kind of make sense of it and, and find something unique. Um, so it's very cool to hear you say that. Thank you. And yeah, you are right that we do
1: question liberal education here a lot. And I think some of the criticism is correct. I think over the years, um, liberal arts has become a little bit too kind of optional, meaning you can do whatever you want, um, instead of having some prescriptiveness to it. Uh, And the result of that is that people don't learn some really basic science that they should know and really basic math that they should know. And that's true about my own education as well, right? Like, that's probably choices I made in terms of what to study, Whereas had I been forced to take more math and science, that would have been a better thing for me and my career in terms of what I would be prepared to do. And so the criticism of, hey, folks don't know anything about computer science as an example, and it's really tough to be in tech if you don't know CS, it is very valid. But that does not mean that you don't need to know other things at the same time. And I think a lot of the challenges that we already face uh, in technology and will face even more so in the years to come around ethics and around choices that we make in terms of what technology is and is not able to do and how it functions can't really be kind of judged and and addressed without having a much broader sense of knowledge. And so I think that over time, uh, you know, truly liberal educated people, once we kind of have an understanding of, of morality, will be really, really critical to success of technology because AI is going to raise some really massive questions about society. And frankly, like, I don't think Facebook would be facing a lot of the challenges that it's faced in the 2016 election and today to the same extent, if it had more people at Facebook, uh, who were educated in the way that I'm describing. Yeah.
0: That's uh, super interesting. That that's a whole nother, we, we could have to do a separate podcast on that, that conversation. Uh so I want to focus mostly on on shift and where you're going, but just briefly, I want to go back to something that I'm sure was very formative and, and I can relate to it is you came up with taxi magic, you know, a full two years before Uber comes to market uh, you know, taxi magic is now known as curb, but all of a sudden you come to market and then boom, there's Uber, there's Lyft, there's all these different sort of competitors. Um, what did you learn from that experience that, a, enabled you to create sh- shift and that helps you make better decisions today?
1: Totally. So TaxMagic was an awesome experience. Uh, we had a co-founder named Tom De Pasquale, who is an incredible innovator on the East Coast. He's built some really amazing companies over the years and always ahead of the curve in terms of seeing technology before people fully realize that the technology is going to be a big thing. Um, and he's really the one who helped us understand how critical mobile would be and kind of build on mobile. In our case, the, our problem was that we were probably like six to nine months ahead of where ideally we would have started, uh, which is not a thing that most entrepreneurs say that, hey, I was too early, but we were frankly too early. because we built for BlackBerry, we built for you know Windows Mobile, uh, we built for Palm OS. Uh, and because those were the dominant softwares back in the day for um, you know smartphones before the iPhone existed, and then about a year and a half into the company existing, the iPhone came out and really changed the game in a really positive way. today, people criticize the App Store, but frankly, like I know what it was like to build uh, software for mobile before the App Store, and it was really terrible. So I don't really kind of subscribe to all this criticism of the App Store because it actually made. A lot of what we do today and technology possible and I think ignoring that makes no sense so we were too far ahead in terms of when we started and we really in some ways wasted a lot of the innovation because ultimately we had to redo it for the iphone and that was a challenge right uh, because we were no longer you know ahead of the curve in, in a sense because we had already built up so much infrastructure uh, for windows mobile and, and for blackberry in particular uh, so that's, that's number one number two is um we frankly, didn't do enough test and learn. We thought we knew what the answer was to the consumer need. And our answer was only half right. Consumers did want a really simple way to book uh, a taxi. Consumers didn't necessarily want a way to pay for a taxi that we had created for them, but we wouldn't let them use the product unless they did both things, book a taxi and pay for the taxi at the same time. Uh, And if they didn't use the payment technology that we created, That was part of the application we'd send them these really nasty emails saying why did you not use the payment and still charge them the money for the full product Uh, that was like a huge mistake we should have tested and learned our way into the product a lot more build a much simpler product in the beginning and then added more features over time based on where the user needs were and that was a big error it is always a conflict uh, when you're doing a startup between like the founder kind of gut feeling in terms of what needs to be built and where the consumer wants to go and it's a fine balance because oftentimes consumers don't actually know where they need to go, right? Like if you had asked consumers in 2005 about the iPhone, they might not have, like in, in features of the iPhone, they probably would have said no, right? So having the right gut feeling is also really critical and I don't dispute that at all. But being able to learn your way into the product is also important. Uh, and we didn't do enough testing and learning uh, at Taxi Magic, uh, which is something that we've done you know fairly differently at Shift. And then the third thing is that, We built a B2B product uh, for what should really have been a consumer-focused product. That was driven primarily by the fact that Tom's experiences had primarily been in uh, enterprise software, Uh, and uh, that's the world that he knew, and that's the world that we initially went after. But consumers are very different, and back in the day, kind of the freemium concept didn't really exist. The idea of offering something to consumers for free and then using that as a way to get into the enterprise, uh, right? It wasn't really a a factor, even though that's how a lot of the enterprises have been building products today. And we thought about it, but we didn't do it. And I think that was a mistake. And, you know, frankly, ultimately I should take responsibility for everything as as a founder, along with other founders. But my position was very different. I wanted to give away the product for free, but I think others at the company did not want to do that. And that was a mistake because the feeling was if we gave away the product for free, then we'd never be able to charge for it. But we've seen with Uber that that's actually not the case, right? With Uber and Lyft, they've lost a ton of money, but then over time been able to you know, start charging consumers more, start charging the drivers more, and driving towards profitability. They're not fully there yet, but they're definitely headed in that direction. If they slow growth down, they would be profitable businesses. And so I think this idea that we had to make money on every transaction right away, we needed to kind of not give away anything uh, to anybody, was an error. And I think we would have been way at the forefront of kind of freemium had we done it in in a freemium way that we, you know, considered doing and didn't end up doing. So those are kind of like the three big things that I think I would do differently uh, at TaxiMagic. Look, I was A, young, uh, you know, reasonably inexperienced uh, and certainly knew nothing about technology. Uh, And so it was a great learning experience. Ultimately, it innovated the space in a dramatic way. And even though, you know, today no one uses Netscape, you know, without Netscape, the internet would be very different, right, today. And, and so I kind of view, you know, Taxi Magic in a similar light. Um, Toby Russell, my co-founder of Taxi Magic and my co-CEO at Shift, actually um, kind of started saying that first, like, you know, Taxi Magic was the Netscape of ground transportation, uh, which I think it really was. And, and you know, we did change uh, the world of ground travel in many ways because we brought it to mobile and we brought on-demand services to mobile, but we were not the winners and that's okay you know you learn your way into being uh, more successful and ultimately you know took those learnings into into hopefully a better business uh, at shift the same way that, you know if i ever 10 years down the road start another company i'm sure i'll do
0: that company better because of all the things that i learned uh, you know at shift quick insight i didn't offer to buy my first business and i turned it down the same folks started a competitor It felt like the next morning, and it absolutely blew me out of the water. The failure of that business was crazy painful at the time, but has been the single greatest lesson in terms of any success I've had since that point. You have to get comfortable with discomfort and get comfortable with the potential to fail. It might be the best thing that ever happens to you. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, it's so so much of this is timing, uh, but also that that always improving, uh, and and some some of these you know challenges and and looking back on things, it's always easier to be like, oh, I should have done this, but in the moment, you learn these things, you then have that lesson right to build upon, uh, which is only going to make shift that much more interesting, and you know the next business more interesting, and and your decision making process go faster and be more succinct. So talking about Shift, can you give us the, the founder story, You know why you started it, and, and a little bit of an introduction of, of what Shift is to those that don't know? Totally. So maybe let's start with that because it's
1: easier to talk about it once people have a sense of what the business actually is. Uh, Shift is a marketplace for buying and selling cars. Uh, it's a fully e-commerce uh, digital kind of transaction platform for a car purchase. For someone to sell a car, they come to Shift.com, submit that car information to us, We have a pricing algorithm that prices the car in the back end and then tells them what what we can buy it for. And if they want to work with us, we'll come out to their house or office, take the car away. They never see it again. And then if you're a buyer, you come to our website, ship.com, find the car that you want. And then you have the option to book a test drive where the car shows up at your house or your office, same day or next day. Uh, And once you check it out, then you can buy it in the car itself, like sitting in the car on an iPad device. Um, where you can complete the transaction fully digitally. Or if you want, you can buy a car online even without seeing it and then have the car be shipped to you uh, at your convenience, uh, delivered to you, and then you're done. Um, so we offer kind of both ways for you to purchase a vehicle. Uh, it, it is a you know, massive innovation for automotive retail uh, because retail automotive is the largest retail vertical in the U.S. economy. Uh, U.S. cars alone are nearly $850 billion uh, in annual sales and, and growing. But, uh, you know, less than 1% of those transactions are online today. Uh, and Shift is sort of one of the three players driving transactions online, along with Room and Carvana. Um, there are two public companies uh, doing it as well. Um, they're slightly bigger than us, uh, but also older than us uh, as well. And their model is much more focused on buy online only and then ship it to you versus we offer a kind of combination of buy online and, and the test drive as well. The, you know, when Toby and I started thinking about Taxi Magic. I think roughly in 2011, I had moved to the East Coast, sorry, from the East Coast to the West Coast and joined Google and, uh, you know, knew that I was going to one day go and start another company. And he and I would do a phone call, you know, usually once a week, kind of thinking through what businesses we could go after. And the idea of cars would come up a lot, partly because we both had a car purchase experience that we didn't really like. In my case, it was an attempt to try to refinance a lease uh, to turn it into a purchase rather than a lease trying to get banks to do that and they couldn't get a bank to work with me they all would tell me hey go to a dealership to get um, this finance and I just didn't understand why banks would be telling me to go to a dealership to get financing now I know why that was happening back then I didn't really get it Uh, and in Toby's case he wanted to buy a car uh, from CarMax uh, Called that bank up to say hey can you finance this purchase for me and the response was no I we can't you have to go to one of our um, dealerships to be able to to do the financing through us, um, and which made no sense at all, right? So ultimately, he end up buying that car from Carmax anyway, but using you know a Carmax lending option rather than his preferred bank, um, which also obviously you know didn't make any sense. Uh, and so we both had this experience of a car purchase that, in our view, didn't make any sense from the financing perspective, uh, and it felt like there was an opportunity to to change things. Uh, and so that's why we started to look at cars and you know, spent quite a bit of time understanding the industry. I probably interviewed like over 50 dealers um, and to understand what they were doing and why they were doing things the way they, they did um, and why digitalization had really not taken hold uh, in the space and then to develop a product that made sense in that environment. And, you know, I had talked earlier about like testing and learning, really like the idea of taking cars from consumers and buying them from them and then you know, reselling them. That was a test on non product because that's not what we initially thought of. Um, we actually initially wanted to help consumers with the transaction, but with the transaction happening the way that it would happen without shift, right? Like you might find somebody on Craigslist and you're then selling your car to them. And we would come in and help you with financing and warranty and kind of certainty that the car quality is really good in a similar way to what Airbnb does when you rent an apartment on Airbnb. But, you know, what we learned from consumers was, no, actually, they wanted us to own the entire transaction uh, because consumers that we would work with would tell us, hey, why don't you just take the car away and sell it for us? Uh, and so I never thought that we would have inventory or that we'd have reconditioning, etc. But it became clear that we needed to do those things because that's what the consumers wanted us to do. So it was a very different approach to kind of how to build a product and learning our way into what the consumer experience here would be. Um, and frankly, we didn't build a lot of technology uh, right away. We would first try to understand consumer behavior, engineer the product for the consumer in a manual manner, and only after that build the technology, which allowed us to build much better tech uh, as a business at a way lower cost than if we had just kind of gone out straight away and, and build a lot of stuff uh, right off the bat.
0: It's just so interesting, right? Because it's in some ways there's some formulas uh, that exist in other businesses of looking at a large industry that potentially hasn't innovated a lot, figuring out ways to remove the friction uh, in the process for the consumers uh, and make it easier. But what I love about this is that you didn't kind of create that in a lab somewhere and then push it out to everybody. It was more you're in the field, you're actually talking to dealers, you're letting consumers kind of give you input on what pieces of this were broken to them, which were different than what was broken to you, uh, or additive at least. And the part, and and I'd love for you to tell me what you think the secret sauce is of shift, but for me looking at it, the idea of basically being able to say, I'm interested in this car and that the car comes to me for the test drive is like something I, I didn't know was, was possible. Right. I, I think of buying a car. And I think a lot of people do is this, like it starts out fun and it becomes miserable because you're dealing with pushy salespeople and you're bouncing from lot to lot and you kind of know what you want, but like, they throw so many different options at you that like you get overwhelmed, and like you'd rather just not have a car. And it sounds like you're you're making that experience so much more user friendly.
1: Yeah, no, that, that's that's 100 right. Like the magic moment for Shift is the test drive delivered to load the customer. Um, that is something that's really differentiated um, and something that no one else really does, and it's patented. Uh, and so some people are trying to now do it, but you know we'll see. What the courts to say about that all the time um, because uh, that is a unique thing that we created. And when I would say that we would do that, people thought I was insane, uh, quite frankly, right? Like I would be like, uh, there were two reactions. Consumers reaction was, oh, wow. Uh, and dealer reaction was, you're nuts because dealers were built on the notion that, hey, I need to drive the consumer to the dealership so they can I, I can sell them additional stuff or sell them a car that's different from the car that they actually want to buy because the car that they want to buy you know, I want to even not sell or hold or sell to somebody else. And so the idea that you would like bring the car to the consumer and that's it uh, is really, you know, opposite of uh, how the dealership model kind of works. But obviously, you know, it's proven not to be correct. And a lot of people have tried to not move in that direction. I remember two or three years ago, um, uh, one of the large OEMs did an ad about how for their new cars, you could have them be brought to your house now. And one of my... um, Earliest employees send me this text message saying, like, now we've finally arrived. Because if you know that you are in a Super Bowl ad, uh, right, as a concept, then people like actually accept you as being like for real. And so that is definitely the magic moment of, of shift. I don't know if I would call it the secret sauce though, because um, that's a little bit different for me. Like, what is the thing that makes us go around and make us work? I don't think it's just the test drive. The test drives is component that. But really, uh, what makes us, you know, fundamentally different is this. Combination of a really strong operational business with very, very good um, set of operations with and strong operational excellence coupled with technology and that software and technology bringing technology and leverage to the operation, reducing its costs, reducing its complexity and making it easier to scale. Uh, and so, you know, we are um, now entering this really kind of high growth stage uh, post, you know, becoming a public company and being a lot more financed than we've been in the past. And the reason we can do that at a much cheaper cost base than our peers have done uh, you know, so far is because we've invested in technology so much and because that technology allows us to do things that otherwise would not be possible to do at scale in the field. You know, anything from how we price cars and the you know artificial intelligence that we use to do that or the machine learning that we apply to you know, car selection on consumers' behalf or how we manage our logistics uh, in the field and being able to send people on test drives and have a really high utilization of our field workforce, and, you know, any, any number of other things I could mention like that. Those are all things that make our business possible and allow us to kind of over time scale the business with a much lower cost base than what we've seen happen so far. And that's all the magic sauce of shift. And a key component of that, obviously, is you know the consumer experience and the magic that the consumer feels, but
0: that's not the only part. It's interesting. One of the reasons I, I really wanted to have you on the show is is that you're a disruptor, and and what I mean by that is, you know, you see these day to day problems, you know, whether it is on the taxi magic side, whether it is here with Shift, and you apply like a different lens to it, right? You you think of how technology can solve that. My question for you is, why can't these bigger, more established companies see and solve for those problems, right? Why do they keep getting disrupted? Why, why wasn't the biggest dealer group or that, that the huge OEM that was on the Super Bowl, you know, why aren't they the ones coming up with uh, these, these new innovative and disruptive solutions?
1: Well, they certainly try, right? I mean, CarMax has spent hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars trying to build a digital presence. Uh, and still doesn't have one because, I mean, it was amazing to me that when COVID happened, they shut all their stores down in California after spending so much time and money um, in, in, in on on technology. Um, so they certainly try. Like I think we, we should give them credit for that. And I think it's true across industries. It's usually, uh, it takes a while uh, for big companies to start trying and a lot of pushing from the board and others uh, for them to get going. But eventually they do. There's, you know, a lot of reasons why I think it's hard to, Disrupt your own business. And I'll kind of talk about that in, in a minute. But before saying that, I do want to say uh, one thing, which is that running large companies is actually really, really difficult. I have, you know, post shift, a totally different appreciation for, uh, you know, someone like United Airlines or American Airlines and how incredible what they do is. We as consumers might be in the airport and the planes come in late or whatever, and we get really frustrated by that. But the idea that ninety percent of the time they are on time is actually amazing and incredible, given how large of a network of planes are running and the fact that they're covering the entire world. Right. So running large organizations is very, very tough. You have to have a machine to do it, and you know any disruption of that machine is not something that's welcome because it's such an important thing to make the operation run well. Um, you have on top of the employees and the customers, you have to hook up your shareholders because you have to you'll have financial results for them as well uh, and that's kind of where the focus goes for big companies so i want to compliment that because i just think like we we in the silicon valley don't fully appreciate how hard it is my business is a very operational business and so i've had to learn operations a lot more than i think i ever thought i would uh, and it's really tough so i have a totally new appreciation for that in a way that i didn't when i was doing software more and, and didn't really you know understand operations that all said you know I think uh, one reason larger companies don't innovate is because they are so focused on running their core business. Uh, another reason large companies don't innovate is because they don't see the threats. Um, I think uh, you know when you have a really good business and that business is doing well, you're not looking over your shoulder and thinking about, hey, what else might happen that might disrupt me? It takes a really unique kind of CEO and leader to disrupt his own business. Because he's thinking for or his or own business, because that person's thinking forward about hey, what could happen in the future, right? What Apple did with an iPhone, basically destroying its um, you know, uh music distribution business and its uh iPod business uh in order to to build the iPhone is very, very unusual and it normally does not happen. And you know, it's in the middle of doing that again by you know making the iPad have more and more functionality and becoming like a computer because it's going to eat into its computer business, <laughs> but they know where the world is going and that's what they want to do. That's very unusual and it normally does not happen. Uh, I think we should give credit what credit is due. Like take Uber, for example, Uber saw Lyft kind of introduce a totally new concept for just any random driver, drive a car around and offer that as a service. And it basically destroyed its black car business by building a competitor to lift, right, with just the kind of ride-sharing driver. So that's, again, very unusual to do. For a large company that's really tough to do, there's usually not anyone who kind of can push them in that direction. Um, And uh, some of this has to do with corporate governance. Like, I think the right place to have um, innovators would be on the board. (laughs) And so it would be very smart for boards to have a lot more, you know, younger, innovative uh, entrepreneurial leaders on it. But normally board selection is the exact opposite, right? It's, it's folks w- with a much lengthier career on the way to retirement post as CEO or CFO or some other C-level job. And so th- the boards are the corporate governance, because they're generally missing a lot of the innovative approach that you need to take. Like, So we just announced our board additions as we go public. And, you know, for us, like one of the core things was, hey, we need to ensure that there is product sense on this board, Because we are a technology company, and we want product innovation present in the room. So Adam Nash is on our board, and he is a technologist, and that was really, really important. That is not to say we don't want the upper expertise, but we put an amazing um, marketing leader on our board, and we put an awesome finance leader on our board as well, which is kind of more normal uh, for our board. But I
0: think you need to have kind of all of that
1: on it to, to be successful.
0: That's awesome. Well, you, you mentioned, you know, kind of going public and I've, I've noticed on, on your LinkedIn, you've been writing and, and talking a lot about SPACs of late, which is I presume how you're, how you're going public. So for the audience and for this host who has yet to uh, spend a lot of time understanding what a SPAC is, can you give a little bit of overview what it is, why you're pursuing that route and why people should start to pay attention to it? Yep, totally.
1: So SPACs stand for Special Purpose Acquisition Company. Um, they're publicly traded companies that raise money from public market investors, mostly hedge funds, uh, when they go public, and then use that cash to merge with a private business, and through that merger, turn uh, over the management of the of the company to the business they merged with, um, and then make that private business become a public company. They've been around for a long time. Um, it's not like a recent innovation. They're also called blank check companies. That's never kind of name for them because they have a check and there's no business behind them. Um, and they've been around for a while. There have been some very successful stocks and some unsuccessful stocks, but over the last, you know, let's say four or five years, they've become a lot more prominent. Part of this was driven by the fact that a few very, you know, good organizations got into issuing stocks, so in, into starting these companies and uh, you know, that that gave them a lot more credibility. So the Coens, um, who actually are the issuers of our staff that we are merging with, um, are one group, uh, TBG, is, is another one. Uh, Gore's is another one. So these are all like very successful financial, um, you know, leaders who got into issuing stats. Uh, and that really helped. Uh, in Silicon Valley, um, Chemaf is uh, kind of the instigator of stocks and, and he issued a stat a couple of years ago as well and, and then merged it with, Virgin Galactic, um, you know, this year, I believe, or maybe last fall, I uh, forget now, and that was kind of the first Silicon Valley-led SPAC process. Uh, and so stacks have become more prominent because kind of really high-caliber individuals and, and financial organizations got into the business of issuing them. Uh, and they present some really wonderful advantages to certain types of companies that, that want to go public. Uh, and I can talk about that in, in a minute. Just want to finish talking about what kind of what they are and what they do. So in Shift's case, um, you know we are merging with a company called Insurance Acquisition Corporation, um, which is a SPAC that was issued about a year and a half ago. Uh, and when the merger is completed, um, you know Shift the, the name is going to be changed to Shift Technologies, which is Shift's name, and, and the ticker is going to be changed from INSU to SFT, and and will become the company basically. As part of that transaction. Uh, there's cash in the insurance acquisition corporation trust and, you know, all or a big part of that, that cash will come to shift. Uh, and then we also raised a private placement when we did the deal, uh, earlier in the summer, which also will come, uh, to shift. So shift will be very well financed, uh, as a result of this transaction, uh, which is, you know, a huge benefit and will be a public company with public shareholders, uh, which is also fantastic. That's kind of the broad view of what SPACs do. We were the first. Silicon Valley company to do a SPAC this year, and you know when I first raised that idea with with our board, you know people thought I was a little bit kind of out of my mind <laughs> in terms of what I was suggesting. Um, but as they learn more about the, the model and, and what it does, they they saw the advantages that, that I was seeing, and of course then we opened up the floodgates to everybody else. And you know since then have been I think at least a dozen Silicon Valley companies uh, announced SPAC transactions. Uh, including Open Door, which just did it about a week ago, um, so it's it's actually great. I think for Silicon Valley, that that companies are are headed in that direction. You know, companies that otherwise would have probably stayed private for too long are now exploring alternative options, uh, and SPAC is a great option from that perspective. A couple of really big advantages to doing a SPAC transaction over a traditional IPO. Number one, you are able to raise substantially more capital uh, in a SPAC transaction than in, in a normal IPO. Um, so in a normal IPO, banks normally don't want to underwrite uh, more than, uh, you know, 10 to 15 percent of the enterprise value of the business. In a SPAC, you can, you know, very reasonably raise 30 percent or more of the enterprise value of the business. Uh, so if you're a capital intensive business that wants substantial amount of capital, uh, you know, for operations, that's a huge benefit. And then secondly, they are faster in terms of uh, being able to time the market correctly. Part of the challenge for IPOs is you might have a great company, you might have a great prospect for the future, but if the market is in bad shape, it's really tough to IPO, right? So there's like an IPO window, and if the window is closed, you can't IPO. But, you know, it's very hard to time those windows because you might in June start thinking that you want to go public, the window might be great, but by the time you're ready to go public, after your S1 is ready, it's now October and the window is closed, and then you're in, in, in trouble, right, from the timing perspective, but if you do a SPAC, you can actually do the transaction and reach a deal with a with a SPAC company, with a black company, uh, in June because it's very fast, and then um, you know do all the SEC related stuff after you announce that deal. So you still go through a very very rigorous regulatory process, but it happens like once the deal has been announced you know, because it's more of a merger rather than an IPO, uh, and that uh, you know is very beneficial from the timing management perspective as well. So those are kind of the two big pluses um, of, a, of a SPAC transaction. I mean, there are others as well, but those are two really big ones. And, uh, you know, uh, we, for us, it was really great. And, and we are kind of well on our way now uh, headed in that direction. You know, yesterday, the Insurance Actors Corporation set the, the date of the shareholder vote uh, for October 13th, when the vote will happen to approve the merger. So things are kind of well on our way. and that, That's great.
0: That's great. So. I'll get you out of here on this. What, uh, so you raised the money. What, what's next for shift? Where do you want to take this? And what are you most excited about? So
1: we've, it's actually
0: all public, right?
1: Everything's in our, in our S4 and in our um, public filings. It's actually kind of crazy for me because I'm so used to like keeping everything private and now everything's kind of out in the open. So for us, uh, our belief is that there's a ton of opportunity to grow the business in existing markets there's a lot of market penetration we can capture um, if we can build a stronger brand. And so we're gonna be using you know a really variety of set of uh, approaches to building brand, both traditional and non-traditional, more technology-driven, and building brand in our existing markets, which are up and down the West Coast, while also launching you know a couple markets a year uh, and growing our pr- presence in, in new locations across the country with, with the idea that over time, you're present in all major metropolitan areas, covering roughly 65 to 70% of the U.S. population that lives in large metropolitan areas or the suburbs that surround them. You know, that's sort of one big push for us. Um, The second big thing will be to continue to innovate from the product standpoint and really offer consumers um, new and innovative features um, on the product. I think there's a ton of really awesome opportunity in machine learning and research and discovery in terms of helping the consumers find the right cars. Um, so that's going to be the other really kind of big investment that we make as a company, right, is, is, is around software. You know, it's um, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of execution focus. Uh, and that's what we're going to do. Uh, Shift has always been a very careful steward of capital and will continue to do that uh, now as a public company, which is, uh, you know, for me, like the way I think of it is like six and a half years ago, we were working in my San Francisco Castro apartment, uh, you know, three people. Uh, on my dining room table uh, and the idea that now we'll be a public company is like kind of incredible uh, and then even more incredible when you think about the fact that like you know he has a gay kid born in, in the soviet union georgia and now he's gonna be you know, running a public company in the u.s like there's nowhere else in the world where that can happen and so for all our criticisms of of america it's a really an incredible place to be that's awesome.
0: Well, I love the story. And uh, George, where can people learn more about Shift and yourself
1: online? Totally. Well, obviously, first and foremost, come to Shift.com um, and you know, look, look at it. Uh, secondly, uh, I'm probably most active on LinkedIn. Um, so I'm George Harrison on LinkedIn. Um, that's my most public kind of social media presence. Uh, I am starting to do a little bit of Twitter, but not very much. Um, so that's, I'm George Harrison on Twitter as well, but I'm not very active.
0: Awesome. Well, this was great. George, thank you so much for uh, sharing your story with us. My pleasure.
1: Thank you so much. Really appreciate it.
0: Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to follow us so you don't miss our next episode with Isla Byrne. Forbes described Isla as one of the women running the liquor world. She led innovation and ideation for Diageo, and she's going to break down how to drive change and create new products like Kettle One Botanicals. Also, be sure to hit us up on LinkedIn at VentureFuel. We would love to hear from you and start a dialogue on the type of guests you'd like to hear in the future. Until next time.